Well, I can't think of a better uh, thought to preach to ourselves daily than what we just sang, grace that is greater than all our sin. I need that thought repeatedly, that God is a giver of grace, grace defined as uh, giving us what we do not deserve. Mercy is is um, not giving us what we deserve, grace giving us what we don't deserve. And what a beautiful musical setting that thought was placed into. I do love music, as most of you know. I grew up in a musical family, at least we all sang. And most of us played at least one instrument. I still have fond memories of my dad breaking out in gospel songs in the car when we would be on a long road trip or vacation. He'd sing melody at times. Or if my mother was singing, my dad would switch to bass. Sometimes my dad would just sing all alone and just sing the bass part of some song. My older sister had an especially beautiful voice, so she would sing solos in church. One song I remember her singing, and I remember my dad singing in the car, really as if it was yesterday, a song called His Eye is on the Sparrow. The song was famously recorded by the great gospel singer Ethel Waters. She sang it as part of her testimony, actually, personal testimony. But over the years, it's been recorded by other Christian artists such as Larnell Harris and others. And and actually, it's such a famous song, even many secular artists have recorded it as well. I, I don't like it when secular artists do that, you know, record gospel songs that they really don't understand personally. As one writer said, when that happens, it's kind of like putting a flower in a dunghill or a jewel in a pig's snout. But nevertheless, it's a wonderful song. Here's a portion of the lyrics. How many have heard that song? Mostly based on age. There's a few younger ones here. Here's a portion of the lyrics. Why should I feel discouraged? Why? Should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home when Jesus is my portion? My constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. Of course, that idea of the Lord's eye being on the sparrow actually comes from the thoughts we find in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus confronted the sin of anxiety. Yes, it is a sin. He said this in Matthew 6, verses 25 to 27. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? 
Well, the obvious answer to that last question is that we do not solve any issues or difficulties through worrying. I've said this before that somehow we think we're working on the problem when we're worrying. Somehow we sort of think subconsciously that our anxiety and our worrying is sending out power into the universe somehow and it's out there fixing something. It doesn't. But trusting the Lord while during difficult circumstances does bring a solution, not so much to the situation itself or the circumstances, but a solution to the angst in our souls. Peter understood that reality and wrote this in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him Because he cares for you. And then in verse 10, he says this. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see, the fact is, every Christian can face any trial with the assurance that God sees, God cares and that God is working his will out in some way. Or to put it in the terms of that song, every Christian can say these words with joy and confidence that I I understand his eye is on the sparrow and therefore I know he watches me. And there's one more important reality concerning the Lord's care for his people. He not only sees He not only cares, but Scripture tells us that the risen Lord is actually constantly praying for, interceding for his people. What a thought that is, that Jesus is in heaven, carrying on a ministry of intercession on our behalf. Now, here's a verse about that ministry of intercession, Romans 8, verse 34. Christ Jesus is he who died Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Now, his work that he came to earth to do, his mission, his work of atonement was finished. It was completed. He cried that from the cross, right? It's finished. But his continuing ministry of intercession for those he has saved continues without interruption until every one of his sheep, every redeemed soul that God is determined to save is finally safe in heaven. That ministry of intercession will continue. Now that should be a comfort to us when we are in a difficult time of life to know that Jesus cares, that he's even praying God's perfect will for us. That should be a panacea if you will, to our souls. Now, I'm sure the 11 disciples, you know, the disciples less Judas that left 11, the 11 disciples were encouraged on that night before Jesus' crucifixion when they heard him praying aloud for them. And that is what we are studying together here on Sunday mornings, Jesus' own personal prayer to his heavenly Father the night before he was crucified, a prayer found in John chapter 17. Please join me there if you haven't already. John chapter 17. The last night 
with his disciples before his crucifixion. Right before he and those 11 faithful disciples entered the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would be arrested. They're there on the east side of Jerusalem, down in the, the Valley of Kidron, about to make their way up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus stopped, lifted his face to the Father, to heaven, and prayed aloud. The first part of the prayer, verses 1 to 5, we looked at. That was Jesus' prayer for himself. And then starting at verse 6, all the way first through verse 19, is his prayer for those 11 men. He prayed for them because they were genuine believers, which is what we found Jesus explaining, voicing in verses 6 through 8 last time. In other words, the disciples showed evidence of what Jesus had always known to be true of them, that they had been chosen out of the world by the Father and given to the Son as a gift. That is the ultimate reason why Jesus could pray to the Father on their behalf. Now today, we're going to look at verses 9 through 11, at least the first part of verse 11, where Jesus voices to the Father just a little more of his thoughts about those 11 men. He voices just a little more of his thoughts about his prayer for them. Still, before we come to the actual petitions, that Jesus prayed on their behalf. So let's look together at these additional thoughts in John 17, verses 9 through 11a. Here, in these remaining statements that come before the actual petitions, we're going to look at three facts about this prayer, three facts about Jesus' prayer, facts that make it unique. Here's the first one. Number one, it was a restricted prayer. It was a restricted prayer. Now, Jesus emphasizes this restriction by making it clear here, we're about to read it, that his priestly prayer was for particular persons only and not for the world generally. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world. Now, this is an important distinction, that Jesus does not carry on that ongoing ministry of intercession for people who do not belong to him. And that fits with what scripture says about his atoning death as well. So I want to pause for a moment in our passage and just review briefly what we believe about his atoning death. Now he came to earth, that was his mission, to die on the cross, to pay the debt of sin, And on one hand, it is right to say that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. But in what sense would we say that? Well, first of all, in the sense that the lost world has no other Savior to look to for solving the problem of sin. And so along with that, salvation is offered to the whole world, meaning to all people, all ethnicities, all nations without distinction, When we preach the gospel, it's offered to the whole world because Jesus is the only Savior for the world. In addition, we understand something more specific when it comes to the whole world, that God does show, does evidence or display a kind of love to all people of the world, even to those who reject the gospel. Listen to these words from Matthew 5, 45. It's a different love, let me hasten to say, than he has for his own, that affection that he sovereignly set on his own, 
that he chose to say before time ever began. But yet, listen to what the lost even enjoy. Matthew 5.45, God causes his son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, the whole world enjoys the sun and the rain. Now, this is the idea, this kind of expression of goodness to the world is the idea of what many theologians refer to as God's common grace, his common grace. In other words, the idea that, that even the lost world benefits from the Lord's kindness, the Lord's grace, the Lord's patience. I mean, we even understand this that those who are part of the lost world, unbelievers, are not struck down immediately in judgment you know, when they commit a sin. God allows them to continue to live and enjoy the things of this world. Scripture presents that reality, that they go on about their lives, enjoying the blessings that can go with life in this world. <clears throat> That's God's common grace. But his death, When we start talking about sins that are atoned for, sins that are paid for, his death atoned for, paid for, only the sins of his chosen people. I studied with you Matthew chapter 1 near Christmas. I have repeated Matthew 1 verse 21 to you more than once along the way. Here it is again, the angel telling Joseph, she, Mary, will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Christ himself refers to himself as the Son of Man. And he says there in Matthew 28, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for, he says, many. doesn't say all, many, Matthew 20, 28. Now this is what we call some do, the doctrine of particular redemption. This doctrine notes that while Jesus' death extends a, a gospel invitation to all the world, the actual atonement was offered on the cross to God only for his own people, those that the Father had given to him from all eternity. Now to teach otherwise is to somehow assert that Jesus atoned for the sins of everybody and even those who are in hell are suffering even though their sins were paid for. Just so you'll know, I was thinking about this, studying this week, 15 years ago, in my discussions with this church in the candidating process, it came up that I needed to affirm this doctrine. And so it was with great joy that I could say, yes, I do. We must believe in the particular nature of Christ's death, that he paid for the sins of those whom the Father gave to him, the ones that earlier in John he called his sheep. There really is no biblical basis for this idea put forth by some that Jesus paid for the sins of all people so that what he accomplished then on the cross was only a possibility. He accomplished the possibility of salvation by his death And the application of it then totally depends on people to decide whether or not they will accept that payment for their sins or not. I'm saying this morning that no to that, that when Jesus died, he actually accomplished something particular. 
he accomplished the complete payment for the sins of all his people. He atoned for, he paid for the sins of his sheep. Now I review all of that with you, the particular nature of Jesus' sacrificial work on the cross because that work, we could call his priestly work of sacrifice and his priestly work of intercession cannot be separated from one another. They have to do the same group. We even find that illustrated in the function of the Old Testament priest. The priestly offering and the priestly intercession were performed together. So, like redemption, the Lord's intercessory work as high priest is only for those who belong eternally to him because they are the ones that were given to him by the Father. Now, granted, when we talk about this prayer and his ministry of intercession being restricted, granted, we do have one example, and one example only in Scripture, of Jesus ever praying for the unregenerate. It is his cry also from the cross. We find it in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. He prayed, Father, forgive them, meaning those who participated in the crucifixion, those who carried it out, those who supported it. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Not all those people were saved. When Jesus prayed that, as he hung on the cross, praying that for his persecutors, he wasn't really praying as the Savior of everyone present. It was instead the expression of someone who was a victim of really the most ungodly injustice ever committed, the most heinous sin crime ever. Think about it, to hate the Son, even kill the Son of God, well, that is such a heinous crime that it deserved, at that moment, it deserved God immediately striking down in death every person who agreed with it, every person who participated in it. But Jesus was expressing the reality that he was not desiring revenge on anybody. Scripture says that about God. That even though he's justly angry with the wicked every day, he yet, Scripture says, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So even though he doesn't save everyone, there was, there was mercy even being extended to those who crucified Jesus. And that was what Jesus desired, that there would be mercy extended in that moment to those committing the worst sin in human history. Plus, we could say this, there was an even greater answer to that prayer on the cross. It came to some later on the day of Pentecost. Some of those who were present at Jesus' crucifixion could have been elect sheep, not saved at that time. But what happened later on the day of Pentecost? Peter preached an amazing gospel sermon, a powerful gospel sermon. Many were converted to being followers of Christ, and no doubt in that crowd there very likely were some who had consented even to his death. Acts 2.41 says, in that day there were added about 3,000 souls to being followers of Christ. So we can say that his prayer on the cross 
is a model for us then as believers. We are to, to love our enemies. We are to express kindness toward them. We're not to seek revenge. They're not our enemies ultimately. They're our mission field. We are to pray for those who harm us and persecute us. Christ said to do that. Matthew 5, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. But pray what? It's referring to evangelistic praying. We're to pray that they be saved. Paul did that for his own countrymen, the Jews. He was burdened for them. He says in Romans 10 verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So back to our passage. Even though there is that exception in Jesus' prayer on the cross, here Jesus is clearly specifying that when it comes to his prayer to the Father, genuinely as a high priest, his ongoing priestly intercession, it is not for the world in general. It is restricted to those elect people known personally to him in all eternity, those given to him by the Father. And that fits with the unity, is what I'm saying, of the priest's atoning work for sin and his work of intercession. They go together. And by the way, the Greek order in the original text actually makes that restriction noted even more clear. There's a very contrast, sharp, uh, sharp contrast here. The wording of how Jesus said it was like this. Not for the world, I pray. He said that first. Not for the world, I pray, but for those you've given me. You find an Old Testament antecedent in Jeremiah. Jeremiah was told by God not to pray for the Israelites who were destined for judgment. Jeremiah 7, verse 16, as for you, do not pray for this people and do not lift up cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I do not hear you. Jeremiah 14, 11, so the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Let's pause for a moment, apply that to ourselves. We need to remember that when we pray for our family members who don't know Christ, We pray for friends, co-workers who are not saved. We need to draw a line in the sand just a bit. Now, don't get me wrong. It's it's fine to seek that expression of God's common grace for people. Uh, We pray for God's common grace maybe to be evident in in a child's life. Our son, our daughter, our mother, our father. We 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 might even understand that to be God's protection on them that they might, they might experience and benefit from as an expression of God's common grace. But let's draw a line in the sand. We're not to keep praying for earthly prosperity and blessing for them. If you think about it, that would be praying that they would continue to be happy and successful and continue in their worldliness. No, the essence of our praying for those who are part of the world is that they would desist from their hostility to God, that they would desist from their hostility to Christ and toward the truth of Scripture. And thus, we pray that they would cease being part of the world. To say it differently, our prayers for them should primarily be, is my point, primarily be evangelistic in nature. And that includes praying that whatever kindness God shows to them, whatever 
level of blessings he allows them to enjoy. We're praying, Lord, if that's your will for them, we pray that it would lead them to repentance. The bottom line, prayer for the world, is that people in it would be one to Christ, and if that happens, they cease being part of the world. There's a restricted nature to Jesus' prayer that night. Verse 9 goes on to confirm the restricted nature even more. Verse 9 goes on to say, Of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In other words, Jesus knew that he had been entrusted with the salvation of the people who belonged to someone else first. They belonged to God first, God the Father first, who then handed them over to Jesus to be saved. And it is that group alone that Jesus was zealous to pray for. It was a restricted prayer. Fact number two, it was a confident prayer. It was a confident prayer. Verse 10, and all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. That's a statement of certainty, of confidence. Jesus had confidence in more than one thing here when he said that. He had confidence in the intimate level of communion and sharing between him and the Father. It's an expression of that kind of confidence. And that included the confidence in the shared ownership of all things, he says. And therefore, that meant that the 11, that's part of the all things, the 11 belonged to God and belonged to him as well. He was confident of that. Which means he was confident in the ownership by the Father and the Son of those 11 that he was praying for. Plus, Christ's statement here is not only a statement related to communion and to ownership, it is as well a claim to deity and full equality with the Father. He was confident of that as well. So this conveys two reasons then for Jesus' confidence in praying for the eleven. Both because of the mutual divine possession of all things, including them, and because of the Son's and Father's mutual identity as being divine, because of all that, Jesus was confident that all he asked on behalf of these 11 disciples would be answered. He was confident of something else as well. Look at verse 10 again. And I have been glorified in them. Now, isn't it interesting? He words it in such a way as if it had already completely taken place. If you look ahead to verse 11, you find another statement like that. He says in verse 11, I'm no longer in the world. Think about it. He prayed that while he was in the world. <laughs> he was still there. But to word it this way was, is evidence that Jesus knew all that was going to take place. He knew about his arrest, his crucifixion, his resurrection from the dead, his glorification, his ascension back to heaven, and he knew of the coming of the Holy Spirit who would empower those men to preach the gospel. And all that would take place in and through those followers, Jesus knew would bring glory to him in the years to come. And that's in keeping with an earlier statement by Jesus back in John chapter 15 in that section about the vine and the branches. Jesus said that the Father was going to receive glory through the disciples bearing much spiritual fruit someday. John 15 verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Jesus knew all that was going to happen. He was confident in that. So he spoke in terms as if it had already taken place. He was confident that these men would indeed bring glory to him as they preached the gospel in the power of the Spirit 
and as they were used by God to build the church. But the statement did include all that had already taken place up to that moment. You see, even during Jesus' three years of earthly ministry, the disciples had brought glory to him. Now, as we've noted before, the disciples were not perfect in that. They were not perfect in their obedience. There were times of doubt and fear and confusion, but compared to the rest of the world, that's the right comparison, and I mentioned that last time. Compare the disciples before the resurrection to the rest of the world before the resurrection. They were faithful men. They were faithful to the truth that they did understand. And Jesus is saying, I've been glorified in that faithfulness. So his statement includes all that had already taken place, in some measure at least, but he was also confident of what would continue to happen after he left the earth. He knew that his work for those men and in his followers would continue and be completed in them. So again, in making his request that's coming up, On behalf of the disciples, Jesus was expressing absolute certainty, absolute confidence that the Father would do what he was asking. He knew that what the Father had promised before time, in eternity past, he would bring to certain accomplishment in time, in and through his people. It was a confident prayer. And third, It was not only a restricted prayer, it was a confident prayer, but number three, it was a necessary prayer. It was a necessary prayer. And once again, Jesus knew he was about to leave them. Through his death, his resurrection, exaltation. Look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. As I just pointed out, he spoke as if he was already gone, and that's just a way to affirm the reality of what was about to happen. And that reality included the fact that the 11 were not leaving. They were staying behind. Therefore, Jesus knew that they would have to face everything in the world that's associated with worldliness. He knew they were going to face the temptations that go along with worldliness. He knew they were going to face the world's hostility. In fact, we've seen that along the way in our study of John, that Jesus has already been telling them things like this. John 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 19, if you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. We're just different than the world if we're true believers. John 16, verse 33, he told him again, in the world you will have tribulation. Outside of the Gospel of John, you find this as well. Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 12, here's what Jesus told them. Here's what's coming. They will lay their hands on you and will persecute you delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. That was coming in the future for these men. Verse 16 of Luke 21. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. You see, Jesus knew it was into that dark world, into that hostile world, world that these men would be taking the gospel. If you look ahead to verse 18, even part of his prayer says this, 
as you sent me into the world, Father, I've also sent them into the world. In fact, after the resurrection, before he sends to heaven, he commissions them to go out into that hostile world. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, what we call the Great Commission. Familiar words to us? Let's hear them again. Go, therefore, literally, as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And then he encourages them and says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Back to our prayer. He's praying for them. Why? Because it was necessary. It was necessary, needed that he prayed to the Father on their behalf. They were going to need help, the Father's protection from that spiritually dark world, a world full of sin, temptation, heresy, false teaching, teaching, even what Paul calls the doctrine of demons. The disciples would need the Father strengthening them with his power and sanctifying them by his grace as they went forth to proclaim the gospel. Jesus knew that, and so he stopped and he prayed on their behalf, and next time we will finally look at his specific request. So it was a restricted prayer. It was a confident prayer. It was a necessary prayer. I think there are two very important encouragements that we can take, even from this short part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. Here's encouragement number one. Jesus cares for us. He's always cared for his people, and he always will. We're reminded of that here. I mean, we take great hope in knowing that Jesus atoned for our sins, and we go to heaven when we die, but this passage reminds us that our hope is not only relying on the death of Jesus, our hope is relying on his intercession, his continual praying for us. As our high priest, you see, he came to do both. You can't separate them. He came as our priest to die. And he came so that he would continue to make intercession. You just need to remember that. During your hardest times, you may be in one of those hardest times right now. You've heard me say this before, so I'll always be saying it. That's the Christian life. You've either just come through a trial or you're in a trial or you're about to be in a trial. And it just cycles like that. So we need to remember this, that Jesus knows better than you do what you're going through. He knows even what's coming that you don't know. You need to remember that he cares for you. You need to remember that he intercedes for you. Jesus cares for us. But there's another encouragement here. It's the flip side of this. We can glorify Jesus. We can glorify him. That's an amazing thought. But it's true. Jesus is glorified in every lost sinner that he redeems, that he cleanses, that he saves. Because we've been saved for a purpose. Listen to Titus 2.14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. There's the salvation side. But what about the ongoing side? And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. 
That's who we are. We are people that have been saved out of that world system so that we can bring glory to Jesus through our good deeds. And I'll just speak for myself maybe in that. I'm just telling you, sometimes I feel my efforts and my success in that are feeble at best. And still, it is amazing. Jesus is pleased with all I do for him. Jesus is pleased with all you do for him. With every attempt to do what is right in his sight. Every moment of confession and repentance when you've been convicted of your sin. He's glorified in that. So take encouragement in it. I mean, we should be thinking that way because, frankly, it's our job description as we live here in this world to glorify the Lord. Let me just read some verses that summarize our job description. Matthew 5, 16. Christ says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's what it's all about. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, this is at the end of a section where Paul has been exhorting Christians to live morally pure lives. And at the end of it, he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, for you have been bought with a price. You no longer even own yourself. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We are living souls that will live forever, but we express that in the choices we make in the use of our body. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that broad, far-reaching umbrella statement, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is our job description. That is the supreme goal of everything a Christian does to bring glory to the Lord. And the desire to glorify Him isn't going to end when this life is over. Just think about that. In eternity, we will finally be joining with the angels and perfectly magnifying and glorifying and exalting the Son forever. I love what you find in Revelation 4, verse 11, where uh, you find those around the throne, Revelation 4, 11, and that's coming up in our study on Wednesday nights. A couple of Wednesday nights around, uh, from now, we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 4. Verse 11 says this. Here's what they were singing around the throne. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. I mean, we're going to be proclaiming something like that forever. But it starts here. Feeble though our efforts are, it starts here. Of course, fulfilling that job description requires something. It requires something very simple. Remembering it. That's why we're here. And then intentionally seeing all that we do in every situation as an opportunity for that. Richard Phillips has a great comment about whatever satisfaction we might find in the world versus living for Christ and bringing glory to him. Listen. Phillips writes, what greater incentive can there be for us to live for him than to know that he owns us and is glorified in us? Of what worth are the baubles and plaudits of the world to us when God's Son speaks of his own glory in our lives? Those disciples heard him say that 
that night. They've brought glory to me. You see, in all that we do, start with your home, your marriage. Think about your work. Everything else you do in the world. Think about your relationships, your communication, every word that comes out of your mouth, every lifestyle choice. In all that we do, we are to be thinking about how can Jesus be glorified in me at this moment? It's true about our church as well. When it comes to our involvement here at Twin City Bible Church, greatest church in the world. Just thought I'd say that. I hope you're praying for the church. I know you are. But pray what? Pray for gospel success. Pray that Christ will be glorified in this church. You give your money. Thank you for that. So generously. Why? It's not just a bill to pay. We give generously to the ministry so that he'll be glorified. We involve ourselves in missions and hospitality and spiritually encouraging one another. Why? So he'll be glorified. I want to give you a current example of somebody that I know who is remembering their job description and intentionally making choices concerning what will most glorify Christ. And when I say current, I mean current. I read their news, their newsletter yesterday. A missionary friend of mine, some friends of Pam and me from our seminary years, we knew them back then and stayed friends with them through the years and received their newsletters and pray for them. Their names are Bruce and Amy Alvord. You know where they serve? Fun spot of the world right now, Ukraine. And unless you're living under a rock, you probably know something that's going on in the world scene right now involving Russia and Ukraine. That's where they serve. He announced to his, he serves at a seminary, by the way, he teaches there to train men. Of course, they're wondering, students, you guys leaving, getting out? He let them know that, no, we've chosen to stay. But I want to read an excerpt from their newsletter. Listen to this. We have made some contingency plans because it seems like the wise thing to do, like buying some non-perishable food, water, a propane stove, and packing bomb shelter backpacks that are ready to go. But as Christians, we are not here to please ourselves or even to survive. We are here to joyously and completely give everything we've got toward the fame of the Almighty, all out of love for Him with the hope to hear someday, well done, good and faithful servant. At the same time, we are planning for the continuation of the Lord's work. God will build His church no matter what. Putin can't stop that. They had several prayer requests in their newsletter. I'll just want to read two of them. Number one, pray for this. Pray for the Lord to move Putin's heart like channeling water through his fingers so that he would not invade the country. Pray that Putin would repent and be saved. And in parentheses, they put, aim high. Pray for wisdom and the salvation of the Ukrainian president, who is likely targeted. Hitmen from Russia have assassinated people in Ukraine over the years. Number two, 
Pray for the salvation of Ukrainian and Russian soldiers, as well as the rest of the population. There have been several chaplains in the Ukrainian army who graduated from our seminary. It's a gospel opportunity. The invasion, if it happens. You see, the fact is, no true believer really wants to live under the radar, as we say it, just so that we don't have to experience problems. No true believer wants to remain undercover in this world, so to speak, as they go about their daily lives. True believers do desire for Christ to be glorified, and therefore they do seek to live openly before the world in obedience to his word. Let's pray for the Father's help in that. Our Father, thank you for this brief passage that reminds us of our job description once again. It reminds us that we are able to bring glory to the Lord, that that is supposed to be our driving motivation in all we do. Thank you for the encouragement that's found in knowing that our Savior cares for us, that his eye is on the sparrow, so we know he watches over us. Thank you for his prayers for us. Lord, we do ask for your help and your protection that we would persevere in living openly for the Lord in this world. We don't pray for ease and comfort as our number one prayer request. We certainly enjoy the peace when it's here, but our real heart's desire, Father, is that you would use us and strengthen us for your kingdom's work in whatever time we have left. I pray as well for anyone here who does not know the Savior, Christ, the only Savior that we can offer to the world, that doesn't know him as Lord and Savior of their own lives, I pray you would open their hearts to believe. In Christ's name, amen.